When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I tell them, I've been alone. I've been lost. Both are survivable. And surviving can become living again. You know, if you ever needed to talk, I'm around. I'm fine. But first they have to accept help. For a crew of overachievers, that kind of vulnerability can be hard to hold. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Positively Trek Book Club and an auspicious day here once again as we get to talk about a new Star Trek novel, which is something that hasn't happened very much recently. We had Strange New Worlds with John Jackson Miller. Uh, And now we get a Star Trek Discovery novel with Dayton Ward. And I'm really excited to talk about this one. And joining me to talk about it is Jesse Earle. Jesse, welcome back to Positively Trek. I am so excited to be back. It's new Star Trek novel time, baby. I'm very pumped. It's always my favorite time of hopefully several times of year, I should say. (laughs) Absolutely. Totally. Lately, yeah, not too many times a year, but let's let's hope that turns around. Mm -hmm. Uh, And because it's a new Star Trek novel, we always have to get the author themselves in to talk about it. So... Joining us is Dayton Ward. Welcome back to Positively Trek. So happy to have you here. How are we all doing today? Thanks for having me. Not too bad. <laughs> doing doing great. Mm-hmm. It's a nice brisk Saturday morning, so it's great. You know, staying inside, keeping out of the smoke to talk about Star Trek novels. Oh, that's right. You're on you're on that side of the world. I forgot about that. That's uh, less fun. As as someone who has uh, lived in California for a very long time in Seattle right now, uh, I feel your pain. Not at the moment, thankfully, but I feel your pain. Yeah, so, and, yeah. and we're sending a lot of that down south. So, Dayton, I'm not sure where you're at, but hopefully you're not getting too much Canadian wildfire smoke where you are. I think it's, where where are the fires originating? Right now, we had a whole bunch up here in Alberta, but right now there's a lot kind of in the Quebec, Ontario region. And yeah. uh, I think because of the way the jet stream works and the weather patterns work, we've missed the bulk of it because it's bypassing us on its way to the East Coast. I'm in the Midwest. So, okay. so I mean, we there were a couple of days where we thought we got a little whiff of it, you know, and you could smell it in the air, but it wasn't anything like the pictures you saw from New York the other day, like the whole Blade Runner mm. mystique or, you know, uh, uh, thing they got going on there no you know what our world's gonna be looking like for the next 20 years it's great i love it it's fantastic everybody should probably look at this as a preview because that's the way the world's Mm -hmm. going you know but don't believe me or science just go right i have already i have already settled on an understanding that to get to the star trek world we have to go through world war three pike pike made a whole speech about it i've come to accept this fact (laughs) and then we'll have our endless uh 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 you know transporters and replicators it's coming i'll get there Well, as a Canadian, I would be remiss if I didn't say, sorry. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) 
Because it's Dan's fault. Dan did this. <laughs> was it you? Was it you, Dan? It was not. We told you not to do it, but you wanted those s'mores, oh, didn't you? It's all your fault. I tell you, oh, man. The the rage that, sorry, this is total tangent, but the rage that fills my body when I'm driving on the road and I see somebody flick a cigarette butt out right now. I'm just oh, yeah, like, no, no. I just about explode. It's not good. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Speaking of uh, of strong feelings and impacts on mental health, uh, I'm, I'm really <laughs> excited to talk about this Star Trek Discovery novel, Somewhere to Belong. And... Uh, Let's get right into it because, uh, first of all, as we've said a few times, not a lot of new Star Trek novels this year. So when we get it, it's just so exciting. And dealing with some of my favorite things with this new, new <laughs> Star Trek show that's been around for a few years now, uh, and this this new environment that the crew of Discovery find themselves in. So the 32nd century, kind of this Wild West open environment that we haven't had a lot to do with in Star Trek. What was that like, first of all, to kind of get to write in that environment? It was a little intimidating at first, but I suppose, you know, I've been doing this long enough where it doesn't take that long to snap in. And I've been watching the show since the beginning, so it's not like I'm unfamiliar with Mm. the material. But my biggest challenge for it was this is the first time that I'd written a book where the show was still in active production. At least it was at the time I was writing the book and plotting the book. In fact, I was finished, you know, months before there was an announcement about season five being it for Discovery. I was already pretty much done with my work. Um, In fact, this book was supposed to come out back in the fall of 2022, but supply chain issues and printer availability issues and all that paper issues pushed it into 2023. So I I sat here and, you know, then the announcement came out that the show was wrapping and I'm like, well, okay then. Uh, But at the time, you know, that was the first time that I'd written a book where the show was an active production and I had, you know, immediate feedback from somebody working on the show. You know, to make sure I wasn't stepping on any toes or respect anything. Kirsten Beyer, of course, was her was her usual wise counsel throughout the process. Well, that was the biggest challenge as far as the setting and the technology. I mean, it's basically like switching gears between original series or in next generation era. Or, you know, it's just you got to remember the technology works different differently in this new era. Uh, that was an, also a learning curve because I would snap or I would, you know, I'd find myself getting tripped up by muscle memory, I call it, where, you know, watch the com badge or, you know, pull out his tricorder from their holster or whatever. And I'm like, wait a minute, it it's all works differently now. And, you know, and then I felt obligated to describe how this technology works because we see it in the show, but they really don't spend a lot of time on it. They just, they just go with it and, and expect that the, you know, the viewers will catch up. This thing has to make sense, you know, on the page. I was going to say, I really enjoyed those sections of the book where there was just like, you you stop and just talk about like the characters being like, wow, this is programmable matter is a whole different thing. And I, I enjoyed learning all about the nitty gritty of that. It was a good time. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, I'm trying to get too buried in the tech, but it was like, you know, remembering, okay, they're swiping screens that are, you know, holographic screens in front of them, or they're swiping screens that pop out of their combat. Or um, I joked on, on another interview, it's like, you know, you can transport wherever you want now at will pretty much. So that eliminates the necessity of let's have a conversation in the hallway on our way to the transporter room. You have to come up with another reason for these people to get together and talk about something uh, so that you can push the narrative forward. You know, those, that's what those conversations used to be. It's like, you know, the West wing with their walk and talks and, you know, they get all the exposition dumped at you while you're running through the hallways. And Trek did that to a degree uh, here and there, but you don't really have a need for that anymore. 
So or at least not all the time. So, I mean, it was, I had to get creative with a couple of things, remember the technology and, you know, how it could be useful and a hindrance. And then of course, you know, because you're writing a book and you have bad guys that are trying to defeat your good guys, you have to come up with ways to defeat that technology, <laughs> you know, that, that you didn't have before. So it's, you know, that's just the writer's yeah. life. It feels still like, I remember that's still like a ever present Star Trek problem though, isn't it? It's like, you have to figure out ways to like make the enterprise not be, uh, not be at full power so you can do stuff you want to do with right. the story. <laughs> oh, the transporters have to be inhibited mm. somehow, or the shields have to go down, or data has to take a nap, or, you know, something. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Totally. It kind of strikes me a little bit that, like, one of the joys of write, of reading Star Trek novels uh, in the early days was you had this show that, you know, gave you kind of a... a gloss over of, of what the universe is like. And it was the writers, the, the novelists that really dug into that and showed a lot of that uh, world building and stuff. And in this brand new era, you're kind of on the forefront of that. So I'm, I'm feeling like a lot of those 80s novels where we you know, learn about the the message board system on the Enterprise and the the alien crew members we never right. get to see and stuff. You're kind of doing that for the Discovery era here because, you know, 13 episodes, 10 episodes a season, uh, there's not a lot of room to kind of really deep dive into that like you can in a novel. Yeah, that's always, I mean, it's also fun because we have the opportunity to do that. You just have to be careful not to get bogged down in it at all. Yeah, so, you know, I don't want to be like Tom Clancy either, where I spend, you know, six pages describing to you the cycle of operation of an M16 rifle. And that's not what you all checked into to read about. Uh, but it's important to understand where a phaser comes from in the 32nd century because it's not hung on their hip like in the old days. So it's like, oh, you know, there's that pendant on their sleeve. And if you flick your wrist and you make the motion, it, here comes a phaser. So you have to kind of explain that at least the first time or two, and then uh, off you go. So hopefully people will follow along. And then, you know, there's not too many instances of people reading a Star Trek novel and they've never watched the show. Mm. So you take it on faith that they understand the basic operations of the different technology and they know where things are generally speaking on the ship or on the bridge that kind of thing so you know you don't have to necessarily describe everything but i try to populate a little bit just so you can get an idea of where characters are or what they're playing with or who they're with or you know what's in what's around them just enough to to, to paint that mental picture and then we off we go well, a couple other things uh, I, I just want to talk about with regards to the novel before we get into spoilers, because uh, I'll get, I'll give a warning to our listeners that we're going to get into the spoilers for the plot and stuff. One other thing I thought about when you're writing in this time period is it's kind of cool because you can use the entirety of Star Trek history up to that point, right? There's so many things you can kind of play with. But then it also occurred to me that there's probably a big challenge in that because some of that is still being written right now in the you know, 25th century or, or 24th with uh, various other shows going on. What, uh, what kind of challenges did that present? Um, I had to kind of walk, step softly, uh, was, was my, I don't want to say mandate, but it was the, the counsel that I received from Kirsten. It's like, don't, don't dig too far into the parts that were skipped over that we haven't defined yet. Because again, at that time, um, we weren't sure you know, all it would take is one line of dialogue to erase anything I set up in the book. So you have to always, you don't, you don't want your book to be invalidated within seconds of it coming out of the box at the bookstore. You want to give it a little chance to breathe. So I just was sort of wary about it laying down any hard facts or hard dates or, uh, you know, anything like that that could be 
uh, overwritten by the show. Uh, mm. So I was careful. And there's, that still leaves a lot to play with because Discovery, you know, missed out on the rest of the 23rd century and the entire 24th century, which is pretty well mapped at this point, thanks to all the shows. And so I had plenty of uh, ammunition, so to speak, to work with, as we will talk about, I'm sure, as we get into this storyline. Yeah, I did. I did find it fun. There's without getting to spoilers yet. There's that one bit where you're sort of describing the history of one of the alien species we're dealing with. And it's like, here's stuff that happened to the rest of them in 23rd century. Here's stuff that dro drove into like Star Trek uh, Dominion War and Picard stuff. And then and then there's a whole bunch of other stuff that happened in between. And then we were here today. <laughs> <laughs> it was a kind of a fun little like and yada, yada, yada. But it was it was it, it was all careful. Yeah. It made sense. Yeah, it was the Seinfeld bit. Yada, yada, yada over it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. One one question that I wanted to ask while we were in the spoiler-free section um, was one of the things that I liked most about this novel in particular is it's the first Discovery novel that feels like it could have been um, a missed episode of, of the show and actually gets to be kind of like a solo episode of the show as opposed to one that like fits into the overall story arc. I love, I've loved all the other Star Trek Discovery novels by all the other authors and they've been great. Um, but they've all been like backstories or like had to like fit in weird little holes in, in, in the story. And this one, um, while it is set between seasons three and four, it feels like, oh, this could have been an episode of the show that didn't have to fit into the large continuity arc as well, which, uh, so I was wondering how you sort of went about thinking about that. You hit on exactly what I wanted to do when they asked me if I wanted to do a discovery novel. I said, can I do a traditional Star Trek story? That's so, you know, a one and done kind of thing. And it's something that this particular series has not had, except for just a couple of episodes here and there. Um, throughout its run, most of its most of its stories impact the larger narrative that's driving that season. Uh, I mean, you can point to a couple that are largely standalone, in, and they would work as standalone episodes, but yet they're still driven by the overarching season narrative. And I wanted to just do a traditional Star Trek story with the crew finding a problem and hopefully leaving it better than they found it. You know, not necessarily answering all the questions or curing all the problems, but at least having had a positive impact on the people they meet. That was my overriding request when I was asked to write the book. And then they asked that, that it be set between seasons three and four. And that's when I knew I would have a lot of character material to work with because of the way things were left at the end of season three and yet yet seemingly resolved by the beginning of season four. Like, wait a minute, how did that question get answered? How did that problem get resolved? How did those feelings get mended? You know, that kind of thing. So I had a lot to work with. Uh, thanks. To, and, and Kirsten is the one that helped kind of let me explore those areas. Oh, awesome. Yeah. And, and a lot of my questions going forward with regards to this novel are going to be about a lot of those kind of plot points and things that you picked up on between season three and four. So uh, I, I feel like that would have been an, an interesting time to set a story. And, and I remember when season four started kind of thinking like, we missed something here. Uh, so this kind of scratches a lot of those itches. I really appreciate that. It was a target rich environment. Um, you know, there were a lot of questions about between character relationships and dynamics and uh, questions about, you know, career choices and life choices and second guessing. And did I make the right choice by coming with the crew to the future? Um, there was just a lot of that left on the table. And then by the time season four rolls around, they're running like they've been there their whole lives. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, wait a minute, hang on, <laughs> point yeah. of order. <laughs> we have questions to answer before we do that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
save big on your Memorial Day barbecue. All in the Kroger app. Get three pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Thank you so much for downloading this episode of Positively Trek. We truly do appreciate each and every one of our listeners, and I'd like to especially thank our Patreon supporters. Thank you to our Constitution Class supporters, Jim Stoffel, Joyce Marin, and Paul D. Kinnear. If you'd like to become a supporter of Positively Trek and join our crew, please go to patreon.com slash positivelytrek. You can get early access to episodes, exclusive content, shoutouts, associate producer credits, ad-free episodes, and more. Again, that's patreon.com slash positively trek. Thank you all and live long and prosper. Well, I think that's probably a good point to jump into the the spoiler filled discussion here, because uh, let's jump right into that with uh, mental health and the character of Dr. Arbasala, who I'm, I'm guessing I'm getting that pronunciation somewhat close. Close enough. It's what they said in the audiobook, or very yeah. close to. So oh, you, it sounded like you nailed it. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, uh, a Denobulan character, which I always love. You know, I'm flashing back to Dr. Phlox and Dr. Dr. Trop from the uh, relaunch novels and stuff. Love a Denobulan. Uh, he's this visiting mental health professional who's helping the Discovery crew deal with a lot of this trauma that they've experienced from or, or wanting to assess the Discovery crew, basically, and, and see how they're adjusting. And I really appreciated that because, like you said, season four started and they're just they're fine. They're operating in the 32nd century. No big deal. Again, you know, only 13 episodes per season or, or however many you can't really delve deep into a lot of these things so what was that like getting to kind of play with that uh the meat of that getting into the heads of these characters and, and imagining what it would be like to leave your lives a thousand years in the past it was like christmas morning when i found <laughs> out i was going to have this area i mean there there's a there's i don't know if they actually come out and say how much time has elapsed between the two seasons but i was able to figure out that it's a few months so there's room for stories like this, which is, you know, in the in the show, that's the first time that's happened is between mm-hmm. seasons three and four. I mean, one and two are almost right on top of each other within seconds of each other. And mm-hmm. then, you know, season three starts off kind of that way because, um, you know, Burnham arrives first and she's there for a year. And then the second episode Discovery shows up. But to them, that happened immediately from their from their subjective points of view. No time passed between the end of season two and season three. So. Um, for each of the characters, all they had was those few moments here and there to sort of play lip service to adapting to their current circumstances before they were thrown into the you know the storyline of the season. And even the characters themselves acknowledge that. Even the, you know, Admiral Vance acknowledges that you know he doesn't have the luxury of giving them the time they need to adapt at the moment. So you think they had to do it between seasons three and four. They had to do it after the immediate crisis was solved and they give them some some much deserved downtime. So that to me was my starting point. All these other questions were left on the on the table. Like, you know, Stamets is very angry with Burnham at the end of the season. And Tilly is very uncertain about what she wants to do. And even Burnham is kind of not 100% sure she's ready to be the captain just under these set of circumstances, you know, because she spent that year remaking her life and maybe she wants to go back to that. 
So there's a lot to play with from a character point of view. This is, this is, you know, great stuff if you're a tie-in writer. And then there's just, you know, where does Discovery and its crew fit into this new dynamic? You know, with this, you know, now we know what caused the burn. We know it can't happen again in theory, but yet there's still a lot of rebuilding to be done. There are relationships to be mended. Um, and Discovery is obviously a very important part of that formula. But at the same time, the Admiral is conscious that he can't burn these people out. You know, they're, they're a very special crew and they obviously have a unique set of skills and a unique perspective. He can't run them into the ground. So this is that pause between the two adventures that, uh, between th season three and four, where we kind of take stock of our characters' mental well-being and their, their, how are they faring under their new circumstances? Are they, are they happy where they are? Are they despondent? Are, you know, are they missing friends and family back home? All those answers are yes you know, and know it depending on the situation. So it was fun to bring in an outside character in the form of Dr. Arbasala. Uh, to sort of help them navigate those questions. And I'm going to say, I'm not a mental health professional. I'm not trained in mental health. I have no certifications or qualifications to discuss this intelligently. So I was very conscious of being sensitive on the topic the entire way. I spoke with some people who do have expertise in those fields to try to help. How would somebody do this? And how can I relay this to a lay person without bogging it down in a lot of, you know, technical information or, you know, professional information, how can I make it personal for the crew members and how can I make it unique to the individual crew members that I chose to spotlight with this part of the storyline? So that was a challenge. Uh, one kind of minor thing that I wanted to bring up as well, just as, as a, as a fan reading this is you briefly mentioned the gray uniforms at the end of season three and for half a second in my brain, I was like, oh man, I have to imagine those uniforms this entire book. And then you very quickly, but now we've got these bright <laughs> new uniforms. I was like, oh, thank you, Dayton. Thank you very much. Yes. That did a lot for my mental health reading this. <laughs> Speaking as a viewer, I hated those gray uniforms. Oh, I hate oh, those. They are oh, horrible yeah. looking. And I will, I will, I'll make this argument. They look great on Admiral Vance, especially on the stark white of the, like the main Starfleet base in season three, everywhere else, they look horrible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I rationalized it in my head that those are probably, or could be their dress uniforms or uniforms for more formal occasions. And the kind of stuff you would wear in the presence of the Admiral at Starfleet headquarters. Like, you know, it's like, you know, when you're, when you work at the white house or the Pentagon or somebody high up in the chain, you wear your fancy uniform. If you're busy working for a living, then you have, you know, more, more professional attire that gets the job done, which is where the uniforms that you see in season four come in. So yeah, I hated those great things. I thought they were horrible. So yes, I was happy to uh, quickly move them aside, you know, and move and get everybody into plus, you know, the colors, you got to have the colors, man. You got to have the, oh, you yeah. got to have the blue and the gray and the red and the yellow. It's not Star Trek. If there's not division colors prominently displayed. Mm -hmm. So Maybe Enterprise to a degree because they were before all that. They get a break. But even they were playing the game, you know. Mm -hmm. And they had the blue, too. It was blue. It was poppy. It wasn't just gray and drab, you know. <laughs> Actually, confession, I thought the Enterprise uniforms were pretty cool. I Well, I like those because those were, like, based on NASA. And yeah. There was, like, a good middle ground between Star Trek and, and NASA stuff. So. I thought mm -hmm. they were the most practical of the uniforms. Like, oh, my God, they have pockets. Yeah. How amazing. <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> yes. Women everywhere yeah. rejoice. There are pockets, you know. So it's like, yeah. Except for Paul, She still couldn't have pockets. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Star Trek. Every woman has to wear the skid tight uniform. But, I, you know, as a military okay. guy, I'm thinking you don't wear the same duds to the office that you do to the field. You know, you, you change yeah. your uniform. 
you put on more practical clothes and you know so i always used to rub me the wrong way but that's you know that's every show ever and since before we get into like the meat of the the plot of this story i did like a lot of the first part of this book which was kind of the characters just getting to exist at starfleet headquarters um and like uh like figuring out what that like everyday life would be like now that they're living there um so i remember you talking about like culber and uh, stemets were like gonna go and have like dinner on the star base and figuring out like it was just it was an interesting thing that you, again like star trek even in general doesn't sometimes get into this but especially like this modern star trek shows where everything's sort of moving fast uh you don't really get to see like these moments of like casualness among the crew and so i, I did really enjoy those early beats throughout the novel where we did just get to see them relaxing and what their everyday life to life uh everyday life was like um and sort of curious like how you sort of thought about trying to um, envision that uh, within a 32nd century sort of mode. Well, I just imagine, you know, what do these people do for fun? You know, what does what do the people who are stuck on this space station, they have to do something, you know, to to get their minds off there. They can't work all the time. So there has to be something out there to support them. And, you know, we've, we've explored different types of space stations and, and habitats in Star Trek before, including the novels, you know, like the Vanguard station, which has, you know, all these amenities uh, for people who are, stationed on it so i'm thinking you know this thing is bigger than vanguard it's got to have facilities to to provide this sort of downtime recreation leisure activity so what would it look like you know and I'm, so and then you think about other shows like you know like the promenade on ds9 there's a lot of stuff that happens on the promenade in ds9 yeah so i mean just like and these people these people don't just sleep and do their jobs they they have lives outside of that and and like you said the, the pace of the television show is such that you don't really get to see more than glimpses of that uh so you don't really get to know the person in the uniform uh except for the most basic traits and characteristics um so it's fun when the shows get to do it and it's absolute fun for us because it just helps you know it helps with the pacing it helps introduce people it gives you that pause between you know bigger scenes or, or big plot developments and i thought it was important to show them that way before we get into the craziness of the storyline well speaking of uh downtime and recreation i love the uh, incorporation of movie night which uh we saw mm. in in season three on discovery uh, and here you get to have a little bit of fun with it and play with it and, and describe the plot of the movie that they're watching, which, you know, we're reading this and like, oh, Galaxy Quest. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Just the yeah. thought of Star Trek characters yeah. watching Galaxy Quest. That that makes me very happy. <laughs> I think that's there's a world where that happens. There's a universe or a reality where that happened. There's also another reality where those adventures take place in the Star Trek world. But um, that's another topic for another day. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was fun to do that. I mean, and I had different, I had different takes on those scenes because there's one at the beginning and one at the very end of the book where um, I do that. And then I got my my original idea was shot down, whereas I wanted to describe uh, a movie that was basically a dramatization of events that happened with Voyager and its crew. Mm. Oh, that been fun. But they they thought that was too on the nose. And the only reason I even tried it was because you know in another book that Christopher Bennett wrote, he talked about how the adventures of the Enterprise prize under captain kirk had been dramatized right mm -hmm. you know it's, it's after the five-year mission and there is but it's after the motion picture and sulu and ohura and Chekhov are talking about how can you believe this they made a movie out of our stuff you know they made a movie out of our missions can you believe this 
Um, and I always thought that was funny and I was kind of jealous that I hadn't thought of it first. I was actually kind of mad at Christopher for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Even that, isn't that like kind of a pseudo reference to like Gene Roddenberry in the motion picture kind of had this like oblong reference to like Kirk being like, oh yeah, the, the, the hollow novels or whatever you've watched uh, of us are, we're exaggerating yeah. stuff and like sort of like saying that the original series novel or episodes themselves were like kind of dramatizations very vaguely i've uh i've always subscribed to the idea when people try to ask about how the novels fit with the shows and the movies it's like you know what you see on screen is what really happened and what you read in novels and comics and other narratives is it's sort of the equivalent of historical fiction the way that we you know they used to write books about elliot ness or billy the kid or other real life historical figures or we still do that you know so it's that's how i look at it um, that's my rationalization for why things don't necessarily mesh all the time between shows and, and books. Mm, yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Keeps me sane because if you, you try to fit it all together, <laughs> it's just madness. You know? <laughs> that's what I love about Star Trek, though. <laughs> totally. Yeah. There's like the historians in the far future arguing that the Diane Duane historical novels, people rely on them too much. That's not how it actually happened. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Love that. Uh, oh, my God. You told me to read a book and it's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> some some Starfleet professors like, oh, God, those novels, they're trash. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, I also really loved the uh, relationship between Dr. Arbisala and Culber because Culber's kind of been working to uh, aid the mental health of the Discovery crew and stuff. And he kind of almost sees this as a bit of competition. A little bit when Arbisala comes aboard or maybe a, a comment on what he's doing isn't effective enough or something like that. I love the progression through the novel of of him kind of making peace and and, and not seeing it as an attack eventually. But I, I, I love that because that felt really real to me, that kind of professional annoyance on his part, I guess. Yeah, I never wanted to portray uh, Arbisala as an adversary. I always wanted him to be uh, an ally from the beginning. Now, it was never about competition. It was never about, you know, you're not doing a good. It, as far as they were concerned, as far as Starfleet and and Arbisala himself were concerned, it's not that Culber was not doing a good job. It was more like, you know, how can we help him because he's taken on this responsibility on top of everything else that he does and who's watching out for him? You know, because he's spending so much energy and so much emotion on making, you know, taking care, looking after his crew that, you know, he's forgetting to care for himself. He's forgetting he needs his own self-care. So that was always my intention. It was never meant to be adversarial. Um, in fact, I I was in, the inspiration for the character, if you've ever watched M.A.S.H., uh, mm. the, the television show, is Dr. Sidney Friedman, the, the, yeah, the therapist yeah. who pops up sporadically throughout the run of the show and plays a huge part in the finale um so that was my inspiration for the character in fact the, the actor's name who played friedman on mash is named alan arbus oh, so if you uh, all i did was flip the letters around a little bit to, to to give him a nod so yeah from the beginning that was my that was my touchstone see i i kept reading his name and um because i'm an expanse fan i kept thinking mm -hmm. of arbisarla yeah uh, Avasara sure. from uh, from the Expanse. So that's right. I was like, wait, wait, who? That's fair. <laughs> she would not make a good counselor. No, at all <laughs> as a character. No. I was going to say that would not that would not work well. No, no, no she would be a terrible counselor. <laughs> Great character, terrible. Now counselor. Friedman was always he was he was you know he was he was always the guy that helped you. He, he helped you find your own way to connecting your dots or to filling in your blanks. He 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 wasn't you know like most therapists. He doesn't provide you the answers. He 
helps you find your way to your own answer. And so again, I was very sensitive to the to the idea that, you know, I can't come off. I'm not a mental health expert. I have no idea how to do that other than for myself. So how do I make this person, you know, somebody you want to root for, somebody you want to, you know, you want to cheer on because he's doing the right, he's doing right by our heroes. So it was a interesting little challenge. Uh, I was just saying, I, I loved the moments where we got to see uh, him sort of interacting with the different crew members and sort of like helping, as you were saying earlier, connecting the dots between where they were in season three and where they start in season four. Um, like Indira dealing with uh, their sort of uh, being in like the middle of so many identities with Tall as a symbiote and then also Grey being there. And I liked how you depicted that really well with like Grey appearing uh, every now and then physically or quote unquote physically see them. And then also sort of like drawing upon different uh, personalities for Adira as they sort of navigated everything. I thought that was uh, and and then having uh Abasar Abasarla <laughs> hopefully I'm saying that correctly um having him sort of like have like help them sort of connect the dots about finding yourself amongst all of those voices I thought was a good beat and that happened several times both with our named characters and then um with even like in engineering where he almost hurts himself uh or does hurt himself helping random people I thought it was just I, I liked those beats quite a lot I thought they worked really well I appreciate that I've always been fascinated by by the trill and their ability to tap into the experiences of their previous hosts. I've always thought that was a fascinating, it's, it's like the doctor, you know, in Doctor Who. It's like they, they have their own personality and they're doing their own thing, but yet they have this wealth of knowledge and experience and emotion and pain and, and happiness and sorrow from all their previous lives that they can tap into. You know, the thriller basically as close as you're going to get to that for, for, for Star Trek. And, you know, Adira, they have no training or preparation or any kind of any sort of, you know, uh, readiness to accept that responsibility, for lack of a better term, of, of caring for the tall uh, symbiont. So, you know, they've got a long road to go. And I mean, and they tapped into that in the show, but there's just so much there. This is an ongoing thing. And that's the, that was one of the other messages, you know, about mental health that I had to remember. It's like, you know, mental health is not a one and done thing. It's not something that you finish. You know, it's an ongoing process and it's different for every individual and you don't necessarily cure yourself. You you learn how to incorporate it positively into your life rather than letting it, you know, be negative or drag you in different, you know, not great directions. I'm fumbling through this, but um, so that's my understanding of it. That's how I've come to appreciate it when I've had th th those conversations. And that's what I was trying to communicate. You know, you know I'm not going to solve all the ills of the crew in this one book. It's impossible. It's insulting to even suggest. Yes, that. So I just would like, hopefully, like we're on a path now and we'll move forward and, you know, we have each other to help us navigate the way. Yeah, I really appreciated a lot of those scenes. The one that sticks out in my mind is when Arbisala is talking to Culber and makes him kind of realize the trust, the implicit trust that he has in Captain Burnham. Why can't he accept that? the crew around him has that implicit trust in him as well. And I, I just, I love that little, you know, he's like, Oh, I can't believe I didn't see that you were doing that, but yeah, that makes sense. And having been on kind of the receiving end of that kind of conversation before, I, I really appreciated that. I thought that was well done. Thank you. Yeah. You know, and, you know, it's sort of good naturedly, not offensively taps into the whole idea that doctors make the worst patients. Mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> they're so busy devoting their energy and their time to caring for others. They kind of forget, you know, that they're, they're people too, and that they, they deserve the same uh, grace. As a person whose stepmom was a nurse practitioner, yes, 
accurate. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, also speaking of Adira, uh, you, you kind of touched on this a little bit, but I, I really appreciated uh, how they were characterized in this novel because, yeah, the, the show doesn't seem to delve too much into their past lives very much. Like a lot of the focus in the last season was you know, their relationship with Grey and, and kind of things in the now. But I, I, I felt there were a number of times in this novel and, and one in particular where you really had them kind of tapping into the, those past lives and making it apparent that, you know, they are a very wise person because of all of this past experience and something that maybe uh, doesn't get shown or, or doesn't get illustrated on the show as effectively if that makes sense no it does uh, i see where you're coming that's kind of what i was trying to tap into a little bit i mean on ds9 you know cisco has no problem listening to jadzia dax because he knows that in you know inside jadzia is his his former friend and all the other previous dax hosts and he understands the trill at least you know to a degree anyway he, he he's at least familiar with them and he understands what it means to be a trill host versus the discovery crew who never even heard of them right <laughs> before they get there so even if they were even if even though it's in my head even though it was explained to them fairly recently that's still a lot to take in and absorb and 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 come to understand i mean it's it's a it's a it's a, it's a journey for adira and the crew mm -hmm. that wow this person who's barely out of their teens is actually a wealth of knowledge that can be a you know, tremendous you know help to us during future missions uh, the, just the stuff that they've forgotten is, will be more than the Discovery crew knows. So it'll be interesting to see. I mean, it's 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 kind of sad that we won't get to see more of that on the show. Mm -hmm. You see some of that in season five, but I know you guys haven't seen season five yet. But there's a little bit of that. But I'm like, wow, the potential there is just amazing. That's one of, the, like I said, I one of the things I love about the Trill is that they are they're just chock full of potential storytelling possibilities. Yeah, and I feel like there's a there's a really good lesson in there too of you know what you see isn't like your first impression what you see in front of you isn't the entire truth. I feel like there's a lot of really good story potential there. There's, that's always a good lesson to remember in heat. You know, it's like looks can be deceiving, uh, or don't don't trust first glance or first blush. You know. Mm -hmm. Well, we should get into the actual plot of the novel. We haven't really talked about that yet, and uh, <laughs> that is. Uh, the first thing is the use of the Zahians, uh, of whom we met, you know, Mihani Ika Halikapo in, uh, um... don't ask me to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I was, I, I was going to attempt it myself. I'm like, you did it. You did I it. Practiced. I practiced. I really <laughs> liked that character. So I, I kind of really character. enjoyed that character from day one. So yeah, we, we met her of course in short treks and then later again in season two of discovery, uh, where she, you know, developed this strong bond with Tilly. And then now we're flash forwarding a thousand years later. She was queen at the time. And now we see kind of her legacy, her impact. And not on, not only that, but all of the kind of terrible things that have happened to uh, these people in this culture in the intervening years. Where did the idea of using the Zahians come from like i i feel like the the idea probably came from you wanted some link from the past to the future where did the, where did the zahian idea come from yeah uh, it came out of discussions that i had with kirsten Beyer uh when i was you know trying to figure out where the stakes were in the ground as far as where i could go and where i couldn't go 
um, with, you know, revealing too much information while the show is still being produced. Um, it was her idea to tap into the the, the Zahians and in particular the relationship that Tilly had with, with Queen Poe. So once that seed was planted, then, you know, I came up with the backstory about how they fared, you know, in the years after Discovery disappeared, and, you know, adding in the part where the, the, the Dominion War and the Klingon War and, the, and then, of course, the Cardassian occupation, you know, they basically just got crappy hands dealt to them is what it comes down to. Um, and then, of course, we have to tread lightly across the 25th century and beyond because that area has not been mapped very well. So I had to kind of be a little vague about what happened to them, but the idea is that they just, they had, they were forced to leave their planet. So, you know, are they looking for a similar planet that can surrogate for that? Or are they just severing ties completely and going out? Or are they just trying to get away from everybody? Because, you know, screw everybody. <laughs> we, we tried to be nice and everybody screwed us over. So we're going away and taking our toys with us. So there's a lot of all of that in play. Um, which is why you get the, you know, the schism between the different factions of Zahians about, you know, we want to keep our community together. This is what's left of our people. And, you know, people are like, we've been stuck in this ball for a hundred years or 200 years. And some of us have been born here and we've never known anything else. And we would like to see what else is out there. And one of the things that I wanted to do was, you know, there's no right answer. There's no wrong answer necessarily. Um, both positions are valid. Um, I don't like mustache twirling villains. We've had that conversation before dan you know it's like you know the mm -hmm. best the best antagonists think they're doing things for the right reasons or noble even noble reasons so um i wanted that areas of gray to be explored and of course you know here comes the federation trying to solve a problem <laughs> are they going to make it better or worse you know that's that's let's see what happens so that's that was the initial setup and then you know just it just kind of sp spiraled out from there yeah, it was, it was especially, uh, it was just touching on that backstory that we learned. It was really heartbreaking to hear because with them in Discovery, you know how much of their backstory is reliant upon them having a uh, relationship to their planet. So hearing what happened to that, I think, uh, is is like a very quick way to like make it be like, oh, that that's horrible, especially knowing, you know, making it akin to... Bajoran occupation with the Cardassians and how much that left scars across Bajor and then to see that happening with with uh, uh, another people who had an even more intrinsic tie to just the physical land that they were from was uh, was a really rough sort of thing to hear and and it came across really well in how uh, Burnham and, and especially Tilly sort of reacted to that and Tilly's sort of sense of like what she missed and and this like trying to make sense of her tie back to Poe and getting to see, I always, I loved like the little ties that you found with, um, you know, they would go out to dinner, uh, and they like the, the pudding or the ice cream or whatever <laughs> it was that, uh, Tilly fed Poe has become like a dish there, um, on, uh, in Zahian culture. And so I just thought that this was like this interesting mix of emotions for someone like Tilly being like understanding this tie that they have and what was lost and, and her being able to bring that forward because she knew Poe, but then also seeing all the way she influenced it and, and how they've also changed themselves. I thought it was an interesting sort of complex relationship that you sort of explored with the unique circumstances of Discovery's crew. Yeah, thank you. I mean, Discovery helps a lot because they have not been afraid to have their characters wear, you know, their emotions on their sleeves. I think it's a great thing. I mean, because these people have, you know, they're they're human, or you know, we're going to go with that for the purposes of conversation. They're human. They're people. They they need they need the you know the break. They need the diversion. They need to be heard when they're hurting. Um, and you know, not every 
and this is not just a Star Trek thing. This is every action hero ever. You know, I mean, every every action guy that you can think of has got to be suffering from some kind of post-traumatic stress mm-hmm. at yeah. this point. You know, I mean, just think about, you know, think about Jack Bauer or the NCIS teams like, how are you guys not in therapy? That's the question. <laughs> yeah. So it's nice to see those explorations of the human side of these characters, to to borrow a phrase. Um so that helps. And then, you know, just Tilly's relationship in particular with Queen Poe was something I wanted to tap into. And of course, the pain she feels because she, you know, for all I know, she's thinking if she'd stayed home, she would have been around and maybe been able to contribute to a possible solution. But it also makes her angry that apparently the Federation completely dropped the ball when it came to these people. There may or may not have been a topical a, a parallel that I was trying to draw based on current events. You know, we, we we see a lot of that happen in the world today. I wonder what you're referring to. Yeah. I can't imagine what that could be. Um, so that's, you know, that was where I was coming from as far as that. And then, you know, the hardest part about, <laughs> it's funny, but the hardest part about portraying the Zahans was having to come up with all those names <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then, and then having to provide pronunciations for all those names when it came time for the audiobook. you know, uh, I had to, they gave me a page of all the Zahayan names and I, you know, I had, I had a, I had a spreadsheet going of all the names so that I wouldn't like repeat patterns or anything. It was just like, wow, there's a lot of Zahans in this book. What was I thinking? You know, mm, I felt bad for the poor, for, uh, I forget who the audio, uh, reader was, but she, 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 she she was doing it like a champ, but it was, it was yeah, January Lavoy was the reader for yeah. this one, and I'm glad that they picked her. I love Robert Peckoff, and I think he does a great job. But I, I think you know when when the narrative is focused so much on Burnham, a different reader is is, is more appropriate. And she had already provided that service for us with Una's discovery novel, uh, Wonderlands. So I was happy that you know she was available to do this again. No, she did. She did an absolutely great job. No, she and Robert Petkoff have been like trading off Star Trek novels and, and they've both been really excellent. They both seem to enjoy it, at least in the clips that I see, because they show sometimes a behind the scenes clip of them recording. And, you know, they, I, I don't know. I mean, they're, they're, it's, it's a job and they do very well at it. But I like to think that they're enjoying themselves while they do it. They seem to be in the clips that I've seen. Yeah, I like that idea of what you're saying with Tilly, like if she had been there, you know, maybe some small influence, maybe something would have been different. And of course, that's related to the lives of of each of the people as well, like the parallels there between, you know, what's happened to the Zahian culture and what's happened in the lives of the Discovery crew and, and what might have been different had things gone differently had they stayed with their families etc i i think there's a lot there that's really interesting that that plays on a lot of the the feelings that these characters have putting yourself in the mindset of someone a thousand years displaced from where they they've come from like uh i i love discovery and i think they've done an amazing job of it i i don't understand how none of these people had to go to university for 10 more years after but i i in my head there there are these scenes that i never got to write but i i jotted them down as asides that you know it'd be funny if you could have like characters back and forth like going through the historical records of you know or the databases on the ship and they're like can you believe all the stuff that happened when we were going a cloud attacked earth and then this thing came and attacked them <laughs> to talk to the whales and the borg and all this other stuff and you just you know this giant jellyfish or whatever i mean there's all these <laughs> things that happened and you know that they didn't get to see but they, they're thinking you know has to be crazy. Nobody would believe this. A giant green hand grabbed the Enterprise. What's that about? 
You know, I mean, there's all these things that I would love to have had them talking about in the bar and, and, and let, let Jet Reno have all the commentary on how stupid some of that stuff sounds. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> Pixar didn't happen. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> you can go. You can't break the warp tendon barrier. Why would we evolve into right. uh, salamanders? I don't <laughs> right. understand. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Jet Reno, um, you captured her tone so perfectly in this novel. And as I was reading it, thinking about, you know, some of the things that I see you post on social media and stuff, I realize you're the perfect person <laughs> to get Jet Reno's tone down in these books. I feel like that, that sarcasm and just that, that snappy comeback must be such a joy to write. I had a lot of fun writing Jet Reno. That might have been my favorite character to write. And, and that's a, that's a close call because I really enjoyed writing the different characters for different reasons, but I love Jet Reno. I don't think the world deserves Tignataro. And I think no. Tignataro is makes anything better. And, and you know, when they when they used her and CGI'd her into that zombie movie that they did on Netflix, Army of the Dead, mm -hmm. I'm just like, they need to just CGI Tignataro into everything. Every movie <laughs> will be better if she's in it. You know, go all the way back to the silence and just start going forward and put Tig in everything. You know, give her work until she's dead 20 years, but keep her going, you know, that kind of thing. So I just, I just, I love her sense of humor. I love her perspective. I love her comedy. Uh, if you've ever watched any of her stand-up specials or any of her stand-up sets, I mean, she's just a riot. And the one where she talks about her mom uh, as well was like in cancer. And also just like she managed to make like really dark stuff very, very funny and meaningful. She's fantastic. Yeah. I think that comes from having endured it herself and, you know, having endured it with her family. It, it gives you a perspective and we all sometimes in our darkest moments, we find something humorous somewhere because it's sort of a defense mechanism, you know, against just descending into the chaos or into the pit. And I know I've got a dark sense of humor and I know I've got a gallows sense of humor that has pulled me through more than one tough time. So I can appreciate that, but yeah, writing for, for Jet Reno was an absolute treat. I had so way too much fun, probably more than should be allowed by law. Well, it definitely comes through. Like I just, anytime she has any kind of quip, I'm just grinning reading it because the voice is there. Like it, it's like she's reading it off the page when, when I was reading it and I didn't, I didn't get the, I, I wasn't listening to the audiobook. I just read it, um, written word and it, it leaps off the page in her voice. I love it. Oh, I was just going to say January Lavoie did a fantastic Tig Notaro impression. I was like listening. <laughs> awesome. to this. This you know, I don't really know. Good. If, <laughs> I don't know if Tig Notaro will ever read or hear this, but I hope if she does, she'll, you know, she'll think I did her justice. So I hope any of the characters will think I did them justice. You know? I know that certain, some of the actors are aware of the novels and, and, you know, like I know that when Dave Gallanter's book came out that uh, Hugh Culber, I'm sorry, uh, you know, Wilson Cruz and Anthony Rapp both made a point of, of thanking him for how they were portrayed in his book. So I know they're at least paying attention. I'm not expecting that kind of attention from them, but I hope if it does color their past for whatever reason, they think I did them justice. I think you definitely did. So yeah. one thing you mentioned earlier uh, about um, real life uh, things influencing what's happening in the novel, where that really jumped out for me as well was, uh, so you talk about these two sides in Zahian society and the, the kind of clash between them. But at the same time, while this is going on, there are elements of the government that are 
sending in people who are are instigating things that are that are trying to trying to in, uh, escalate and incite things to make one side look uh to try to make them look bad yeah uh i was kind of wondering you know with things that we've seen with uh allegations that have made with uh things like black lives Ma- matter movements and you know those getting out of control and who's really doing that and that sort of thing and then the other side as well making claims of other side doing that yada yada back and forth i'm assuming a lot of that was on your mind as as you're writing this um how did that kind of uh figure into the plot of of what's going on here pretty much just what you said it was definitely on my mind you know you get these different protests and you different these movements and these um these incidents that occur and some of it is born out of anger and some of it is born out of uh desperation uh and others are there to egg on the chaos and you know so how do you where do you where is that who is doing it who you know where's the line of separation what is the reasoning for it you know all these are part of the conversation when 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 people were trying to equate january 6th to the black lives matter protests and the george floyd protests it's like no those are two completely different mm-hmm. you know in two different things that are going on those are happening for different reasons and so to equate them is you know false mm-hmm. um i'm not just you know now now my particular take on things is like if you if we all have the right to protest we all have the right to peaceably assemble and and to and to re, you know to demand a redress of our grievances but once we start getting into property damage and people getting hurt you know the, the, you start to lose sympathy but again the context of what is happening and why is important you, it's not just a simple well this guy did it and this guy did it so they're the same no mm. no not the, the dynamics are way more complicated than that and you're actually doing a disservice to both sides of that equation when you say that i'm not saying i agree with one of the over the other i mean but i think we all understand that i'm more sympathetic to one side than the other you know i'm not yeah. I'm not i'm not really excited about people taking over the capital on january 6th you know but uh so but it's not that simple you know it's just there are there's so many factors in play that have to be taken into account if you want to have a serious conversation about either side of that equation i tried to play with that a little bit but i couldn't get too wrapped up in in that in the in the in the storyline that i had my my the thing that like resonated with me cuz yeah i i have a slightly different take in terms of like you know civility and like oh it's if you property damage like that my, without getting into that whole argument cuz it's a whole other separate discussion the thing that resonated with me though in this story particularly was how that um that riots and like people uh you know causing you know property damage is often used by those in power to then dismiss wholesale exactly. the <laughs> conversation which is is like no it's like you regardless of how you feel about that stuff and we can have a whole other separate conversation about whether or not that stuff gets attention in the way that is helpful or not you still need to listen to the what people are actually saying and people will sort of clutch their pearls a little bit and be like oh you didn't say it in the right way uh therefore i can just wholesale say oh your side is absolutely wrong and and i liked that this uh, story, especially from the character of the Discovery crew, was very much like, no, we're here to sort of listen and and sort of like, like see that there is, uh, you know, there's people trying to express something important that you know those in power are actively dismissing. And I really enjoyed that aspect of the way you sort of set up this sort of political discourse in this novel. I thought that was a very, for me, a very thoughtful and insightful sort of take on it. So thank you, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's it's definitely one of those things that my uh 
my limited command of the language sometimes doesn't quite have the the nuance to get around but i i I appreciated that uh characterization of you know they're trying to escalate things in order to be able to just dismiss them and and turn public sympathy against it and sentiment against it which is definitely uh something that that we've seen well, I mean, it can be anything from, you know, lighting off, you know, lighting a police station on fire and trying to blame the other side. Or, you know, it could be just being a- angry that someone, you know, kneels for the national anthem. It's like mm. you don't you're not pausing to, you know, or coming up with a justification in your mind so that you can dismiss why they're doing that. It's like they're telling you flat out why they're doing it. And you're substituting your own version of facts for what that's coming out of their mouth. And if they had heard them the first time, they wouldn't feel compelled to make a scene. You know, that's what a protest is, is a demand to be heard. So, yeah. And I mean, we've been watching this now for several years work out where they've completely twisted the intent of of a particular individual's actions or a group's actions so that they can dismiss it. Jesse's bang on when when they say that. So, yes. Well, one uh, other thread that gets picked up, I think, between season three and four that I really appreciated you addressed was, you know, the big moment in the season three finale where uh, Burnham puts uh, Stamets in the little personal mm. escape pod and shoots him off. And, and in Stamets, from Stamets' perspective, takes away his agency in that moment, that that his ability to make the decision for himself there uh, for, you know, understandable reasons and, and that sort of thing from, from both their, their sides. I love that you picked that up. And, and I remember coming back to season four thinking like, we're not getting any kind of resolution on this. There was mm-hmm. kind of the dirty look that Stamets gave Burnham at the end on the bridge in season three. And then that's kind of it. Uh, I, I really like where these characters come to in this novel and and how that kind of slowly evolves over the course of the story. Uh, it wasn't just, you know, oh, one, one thing is said and, oh, it's done. Okay, cool. We're cool now. Talk a little bit about how they came to the an accord here and, and how Stamets and Burnham kind of uh, mended fences there because I really like that aspect of the story. That was one of the dynamics that I wanted to, I specifically cited when I was coming up with what I wanted to do with the book. Um, I just thought it was weird that after all of that, and if you look, if you watch his face at the end of season three and that mm-hmm. final scene where they're all standing, I mean, he's like shooting daggers at her, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I love Anthony Rapp because he can convey so much with just a facial expression. But yet, you know, season four, that first time that they're interacting, there's no hint of this, this animosity. And, you know, it's like, well, maybe he's just burying it deep or they've resolved it. I prefer to think that they buried the hatchet somewhere. I love. And so I decided I was going to bury that hatchet if I could. Um, I like the what I wanted to do was demonstrate through her actions again in a different set of circumstances where he is once again the focal point of a threat that you know, where she's coming from when she did that in season three. And then he realizes that, you know, he's in captivity and they're looking for him and he knows that she will not stop until she finds him. And she will do that for any member of the crew. And I think he finally realized that is what she was coming from the first time, you know, that's her, it's her job to protect her crew. And, you know, Stamets has always had this really standoffish 
relationship with Starfleet and rules and regulations. You saw how he butted heads with Lorca, you know, during season one, and even to a lesser degree, you know, Saru and Burnham in season two. But um, I just wanted him to kind of come to a, not a stark realization, just, you know, as a consequence of the events that, you know, I'm really glad she's as dogged and determined as she is. Otherwise, you know, my life is going to turn to crap here really quick. So I just wanted it to kind of grow naturally out of that set of circumstances that, you know, he can come to respect uh, where she's coming from. And, you know, they're both, they're both headstrong. They're both stubborn. They're both, you know, they're both very passionate about their, about their role. Uh, so I just wanted to make sure that they kind of approached it equitably, you know. I also kind of appreciate how it, it, it flips the, the situation around a little bit too, because again, we kind of have Stamets, uh, being used in a similar way that they were going to use him at the end of season three, but this time he kind of gets the opportunity to do things his way and, and sets the trap for the, for the bad guys, you know, set gives the back door and, and gives all those options, but is kind of left to, he's kind of left to do what he will to resolve the situation while Burnham trusts him a little bit to kind of get out of that situation. It's, it's kind of set up that way, but I, I liked that he has a little bit more kind of leeway to, uh, to enact his plan, which works out really well. And they kind of use both of their strengths together to resolve the situation. I didn't make it a conscious decision on her part. You know, it was just like a gut, a gut call that she can, you know, she's, she expects Stamets to act in a certain way when presented with a certain situation, because you know, she understands his his personality and his stubbornness and his determination to, to do things his way. I'm like, well, okay, nobody's going to, he's not going to let anybody use him if he has any say in the matter. So what would he do in this set of situation? And she's logical. You know, she's, she's also, you know, her own upbringing allows her to approach problem solving a little bit differently than the average person. So she can connect some dots that we might not, that Kirk or even Picard might not necessarily consider that was sort of like a hail Mary roll the dice. You know, I trust my people and we'll see what happens. And of course it works out because it always works out. It's Star Trek. <laughs> so, but I wanted to at least have them both earn it a little bit, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, it was right. Yeah. I also, uh, I mean, speaking also of, of, getting the characters tones right and stuff i totally just saw like anthony rap as Stamets, that little smirk on his face at the end when he's like no nah, actually you know the spore jump was never gonna work and they kind of look at him what and he's like yeah. i did i did like that he's like yeah no, it a, maybe someday not today but not today yeah <laughs> but yeah i can oh. almost I, yeah i was trying to picture how he might play that scene you know it's like ah nah not today nah nah Maybe not ever, but definitely not today, you know. Well, I was kind of, uh, the the image that came to my mind was uh, the end of the episode magic to make the sanest man go mad when, you know, they re Mud realizes they've got the drop on him and he's like, yeah, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I think there were, the stakes were a little higher, um, I think, mm -hmm. but... Um, but I mean, I also, I wanted to show that he was fascinated by the engineering problem that was presented to him like he he really wanted to solve the problem but he didn't want to do it on their terms mm -hmm. you know so even at the end of the book you know we're still talking about how he's going to continue these experiments and maybe uh find a way to get them what they want but we're going to do it this we're going to do it the right way we're not going to we're not going to cajole or threaten people into helping you we're going to work together the way the federation is supposed to do things 
Um, so it helps to mend that. It helps begin the process of mending that relationship with his hands. So, yeah, I, I just love the fact that, yeah, he, deep in the back of his brain, he's working the problem. But he knows it's not. He doesn't have what he needs to fix it today. But he's got enough to bluff his way until hopefully Burnham and and crew show up to save him. I also kind of appreciated how at the end, like it's not all solved in a nice big bow, but it's like, oh, we're gonna work on this, and and we're gonna I, that thematically just I think works really well with you know the mental health issues and stuff, as well as the real world issues with Sanctuary and the Sahians. I, I really liked that decision to kind of leave it there. Yeah, thank you. That was that was a deliberate choice. Um, I'm you know going back to the what we said earlier. You know these these are not problems that you fix quickly or if at all. Um, you learn to manage them. Excuse me. You learn to live with them. Uh, and I didn't think that a quick fix for the Zahans was appropriate given the rest of the elements in the book, but the with the mental health aspects. So it's a beginning. You know, it's a, it's a beginning of of, of a, a renewed relationship with the Zahans and. Uh, it's a beginning for Discovery's crew as they finally figure out, okay, we can we can thrive here. We can find our place in this new world. Uh, that was where I wanted to leave things. And I really liked the, for me, I think that it all came together most in the two scenes at the end where we go and visit Zahia. And, you know, they, I think it's Tilly that says we could, we could terraform it. And they're like, no, we, this is, this is what it is that we, we don't want to. Uh, change this because it's not going to be our planet anymore, uh, our sister, you know, as I said. But then you also get that right next to the scene where we get a message from Poe um, to Tilly and Burnham that is very sweet and, and showcase like there was positivity and happiness and, and life that happened in between those years as well. And it, it's just, it, it pointed to me about like there are, you know, you can look back and be like, oh man, all this horrible stuff happened. But then there's these ups and downs of life, both on a cultural level, but also in an individual's life as well. And I thought that that was a very sort of uh, really nice way to end this story where it's like acknowledging that there's good and there's bad and the bad can be absolutely horrible, but then you can keep moving forward and hope to create something new even out of all that stuff and that there's still, you know, something joyful within all of that. I thought that was like a good juxtaposition between those two moments of looking at the past of Zahia those characters thank you i mean that's that's life though i mean that's 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 every day we you know we we have tremendous happiness and we have a horrible tragedy that we all deal with and sometimes it happens within the you know the course of an hour you can have you know the happiest day of your life and the worst day of your life you know and um but we persevere one way or the other i i have to say i really enjoyed this novel i thought it was uh just a, a great it really struck the tone of Star Trek Discovery very, very well, a show that I adore. So I, I absolutely loved it. And I thought, like Jesse said, uh, really great Star Trek message in it with that that swelling of hope at the end, which a really good Star Trek story does. So thank you for this novel. I appreciate it. I very much echo those sentiments. I really enjoyed this book, especially as a um, Discovery novel that takes place, like that, again, feels like it's a full complete episode of the show in a way that uh like the, again love the other star trek novels but the other star trek novels really haven't gotten a, or discovery novels specifically i should say um haven't really had the chance to do um so this is a really fun really fun novel to read in that aspect as well well thank you very much i appreciate that one other quick question uh sanctuary that's basically yorktown station right <laughs> I was thinking that too. Okay, I'm glad it wasn't just me. It was inspired by Yorktown. And in fact, I even obliquely mention it in the narrative. Uh, you know, I, I try to hang a lampshade on it that yeah. uh, uh, 
Detmer said she saw plans for something like this, you know, and don't know if it ever happened or not, you know, because uh, we don't know if there was a station like that in the prime timeline, but I choose to believe there's got to be something like that out there somewhere. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's also inspired by, you know, there are a number of science fiction stories that depict these artificial habitats like that, you know, like cities in flight or uh, Elysium or things like that. It's just like, I just wanted something massive that they would build themselves with their own technology. And they've decided that this is, this is home because we don't have our sister anymore, but um, obviously, you know, n- not a perfect solution. <laughs> so, but what is my, my, my touch was like Yorktown and um, the Citadel for mass effect mm-hmm. was sort of, the, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, I tried to like, not, I didn't have any idea. I didn't have any, uh, expectations that people would go no nah, he couldn't have possibly meant that no i i expected you to make that comparison which is why i called it out in the book itself it's like yeah mm-hmm. absolutely no and then like the the null gravity area in the center as well i was like oh yeah i remember that where Giselba's uh flying around but it's you know it's also it's also like the dyson sphere you know um you know where the where everything is on the outer edge it's like well there's only so many ways that something like that can work you know, a construct of that type can work. So, and keep it grounded in something that looks like Star Trek science, you know, Star Trek science. We're going to use air quotes around that <laughs> term. Science. <laughs> science. So before we go, uh, and I know this is kind of a question that I'm dreading asking and, and I'm sure you're dreading being asked. Star Trek novels. Uh, we've talked about how there haven't been many on the schedule in the past and as of right now from simon and schuster none on the schedule looking forward uh what's the story what's going on are there star trek novels being planned thought about yes there are star there there are star trek novels that will come um it's a complicated conversation that involves things way above my pay grade but um i am fully confident that we will hear about star trek novels sooner rather than later you know there's been star trek novels since the original series was on tv uh so i i i kind of doubt that we're not going to have any more that's 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 crazy to even think about uh but no i i understand and and i and i wish that there was a more concrete answer that i could provide other than just say you know keep your chin up uh, things are Things are in motion. Just because things aren't publicly aware uh, known doesn't mean that there's nothing happening. I need uh, to know now. I need to <laughs> yes, always I know. know right now. <laughs> um, I mean, it's weird. It, I don't, you know, and, and and like I said, there's a lot of wheels that are spinning that are way above me. Uh, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just a, I'm just a contracted tie-in writer. I go where they point me. But yeah, I, the idea of there not being any more Star Trek novels is is too terrible to contemplate here here um, <laughs> patience my friends all right okay well hopefully, hopefully sooner rather than later <laughs> well hopefully that uh, that answers the questions of a few people who have been sending stuff to my email inbox like i i know even less than anybody else so i don't know why they're asking me but hopefully that that sets people's minds at ease a little bit uh, as for you, what have you got kind of on the go working on that our listeners could kind of uh, look to if they want to see more of your stuff? Well, Kevin and I have been busy writing uh, short stories for various anthologies. We had one come out in the spring uh, that was kind of a weird Western that was in an anthology called High Noon on Proxima B, where all the stories are sort of space Westerns, so like Firefly or things like that. Um 
I just had a short story appear in an anthology that was just published last week or a week ago called Double Trouble, which is uh, our two-fisted team-ups, which is basically a bunch of tie-in writers took a bunch of public domain characters from literature and comics and even you know real history and uh, put two of them together so that they could tell a new story. Uh, so I took two, from my story, I took... Uh, two characters from 1940s era comic books that have fallen into the public domain and I created a new story with them. Uh, but there's things like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, let's see, uh, Robin of, or sorry, Marion of, from the Robin Hood story meets Annie Oakley. I mean, there's all kinds of weird team-ups that are happening there. The Brain That Wouldn't Die meets The Night of the Living Dead. Uh, there's all these, sort, which are two films that are fallen into the public domain. Um, so it's a it's an interesting anthology. It's 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 actually published by the International Association of Media Tie-in Writers, which is a, a professional organization that I'm a part of that tries to get the word out about tie-in writing and this oft misunderstood nature within the larger realm of publishing. Um, so it just came out. Uh, it was a Kickstarter thing that was very successful, and uh, it's available at your at Amazon and Barnes and Noble if you're interested in looking it up. Uh, let's see. Kevin and I also have short stories coming out in two other anthologies that'll be out later this summer and then we also have a book about iron man uh it's sort of a deconstruction of tony stark that will be out from ben bella books in november uh and then i'm working on a couple of projects right now that i can't talk about because they haven't been announced yet fair enough <laughs> such as the life of a contracted writer or freelance writer <laughs> well when you are able to say anything about those where can people find you online to hear about them as always, you can find me at DaytonWar.com. That is sort of a landing page that will take you to a blog and my Facebook link, uh, links to Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all the other ones that have popped up since Twitter started melting last fall. So it was a blue sky, <laughs> Mastodon, Hive. Um, the only one I'm not on is True Social, at least not under my own name. Um, that's that's probably for the best, yeah. I maintain a presence there just for comedic value more than anything else, but uh yeah, so I'm out there. You know, I'm my one-stop shopping for internet banality is at DaytonWard.com. Awesome. And Jesse, just a quick question. How's how's the movie coming? It is coming great. Uh, we are filming in two months. Uh, we have our cat been getting all our... Uh, Basically, it's been a lot of like production stuff. So my life is meetings upon meetings upon meetings. <laughs> so this isn't like a four-hour list uh, video or four-hour meeting about a shot list yesterday, um, which was fun. Um, but yeah, no, uh, we're starting to work with the cast, uh, in the coming weeks. So it's been kind of wild, uh, trying to figure all that out. We've announced officially John Delancey is oh, a part of the cool. cast. So for nice. Trekkies, John Delancey is going to be in it. He's, he's been interesting to work with and, and a lot of fun, uh, but also <laughs> like other, he, he is, he is very wonderful. He was very sweet, but it was also like, oh, I'm on a phone call with Q talking about my script. That's a wild experience. Uh, <laughs> um, but also we have wonderful people like, uh, Jessica Nicole, who's been in Fringe, mm. uh, Abigail Thorne of Philosophy Tube, who is also a really brilliant actor. Um, she's wonderful. Um, and you know, a lot of also queer uh and trans folks in in the uh story so it is a uh just for listeners who have not heard of it it's called identities it is a sci-fi what i'm calling hopeful dystopian story uh about how self-actualizing and being your full self allows you to uh destroy these systems of people that have very limited imaginations about what humanity can be um and i think it's a like i said hopeful dystopian story that will be coming on nebula which is a streaming service that i uh am a creator on so go subscribe to nebula Hopefully with, uh, you know, if you go to nebula.tv slash identities, 
you'll uh, be able to sign up there and that'll let them know, hey, this is, uh, I want to sign up for funding Jesse's film. Uh, and then hopefully I can tell more because the hope is that this is like a pilot episode in a series. Ooh, so awesome. We'll see how it all shakes out. So, that sounds pretty ambitious. It's, going great. it's, we'll see how it goes, but I'm, I'm very excited about it and it's a lot of fun. And at the end of the day, even if nothing else, uh, even if I just get to make this and no one watches it, I think it's been a very wonderful and amazing experience with all the people that I've worked with, um, both in the cast and the crew. Um, and we've worked very hard to have a very uh, inclusive and diverse team um, everywhere because that's what Star Trek has always taught me is that we're it's about allowing everyone to have a voice in creating wonderful, beautiful things. So, yeah, I'm very excited about it. Very cool. Well, we'll definitely keep our listeners updated uh, and as we get closer to when that comes out. And uh, where can people follow you online? Uh, you can just follow me at Jesse Gender um, on YouTube primarily. That's where I do my video essay type of stuff. So that'll keep you all keep you up to date on everything going on with me and get you cool weird stuff. Got a big Star Wars video coming out next month. That'll be a lot of fun. Um, we're doing like animation style stuff with that. Like we're doing like a Tartarovsky sort of Clone Wars kind of vibe with it. It should be it should be really fun to do that. Um, so be on the lookout for that and uh, on Twitter and instagram technically and all those other ones as well blue sky whatever <laughs> i don't really post as much on there but uh but yeah you, youtube is probably the best place so. awesome you can find us uh at positively trek on twitter and all those other places as well uh positively trek at gmail.com if you'd like to reach out and of course the positively trek discussion group on facebook we'd love to hear from you what did you think of this novel uh we'd love to hear your thoughts on that Thank you all so much for listening. We will see you in the next episode. And until then, as always, stay positive. Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers Stay Clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save big